always carry the weight of being environmentally friendly. Uh, thank you, Andrew, and uh, thank you, Baroness Saidawarsi, for your introductory remarks. Um, and good afternoon, esteemed colleagues, friends, and honorable members of parliament, distinguished guests. Before I start, let me say that uh, a keynote speaker is normally the one who brings inspiration, courageous words, and audacious words. And after um, Baroness Warsi and Andrew, I feel I would do a very poor job. I'm saying that not only to commend you, but also to lower your expectations. So I, I would like to extend my heartfelt appreciation to the Balfour Project for organizing this event and to Andrew and Sir Vincent Fenn in particular for graciously inviting me to deliver a keynote speech. On this occasion, I'd like to start by saying that just two days after the solemn commemoration of the 75th anniversary of the Nakba, we must take a moment to address the profoundly significant event that has tragically shaped the destiny of the Palestinian people leading to their enduring dispossession. As I often say, it's not 75 years from the Nakba, it's 75 years of Nakba. I'm fully cognizant of the specific focus and limitation of my mandates, uh, which revolves around the territory that Israel occupied in 1967 only. However, it is imperative to acknowledge the far-reaching consequences of the historical injustice that befell Palestine and its people before this occupation. In this regard, it's also crucial to recognize the substantial responsibility uh, that lies with the British mandate such reflections must translate into meaningful actions. The Balfour Declaration of 1917 played a pivotal, a pivotal role in laying uh, the groundwork for the Nakba, as it's paved the way for the establishment of a Jewish state in Palestine while disregarding the political aspiration of the majority of the people of British Mandate Palestine, including to independence through self-determination. It is worth noting that the declaration only addressed civil and religious rights of Palestinians, intentionally omitting their right to political self-determination. Consequently, under the British mandate in Palestine established in 1922, Britain not only pursued its imperial interests in the region, but also facilitated the entrenchment of European Jews-led colonization, a term that was widely and confidently used amongst the founding fathers of political Zionism, through the already ongoing Jewish migration from Europe toward Palestine and their settlement into economically thriving colonies that trumped Palestinian economic development. Simultaneously, local political institutions were dismantled and severe measures such as mass arrest, punitive home demolitions and violent attacks against the Palestinian population were employed by Britain. Throughout its administration of mandatory Palestine, Britain exerted significant economic, political, and military suppression on the indigenous Palestinian inhabitants who were predominantly Muslim and Christians. Regrettably, this legacy continues to cast its shadow on the lives of Palestinians today as they endure the Israeli occupation, which is approaching its 56th year anniversary. What is particularly striking, striking is that Israel has incorporated the British emergency regulations which were supposed to be temporary and exceptional under international, and are so under international law. 
And this has been incorporated into primary legislation that constitutes the governance system in the occupied Palestinian territory. By integrating these colonial regulations into the enduring pillars of, it, of its governance, Israel has solidified its control and perpetuated a colonial, a colonial modus operandi um, over the occupied population. The ramifications of these violations are deeply ingrained in the current situation in what remains of the territory uh, of former British Mandate Palestine. Given this context, the United Kingdom's current role and its level of responsibility concerning the Israel-Palestine question and the distressing state of affairs are matter of deep concern. The present situation is intricately linked to the historical past Highlighting, highlighting the interconnectedness between the two. Unfortunately, when the topic of Palestine arises, um, it is often limited to discussions during period of so-called escalation or in a fragmented conversation that repeatedly emphasizes the importance of the peace process through negotiation. And this is like a broken record. However, the reality of the Palestinian territory, territory today transcends such limited perspective. And I often describe it as a macrocosm of human rights abuses. It represents a broader picture of, of uh, generalized systemic violence um, and not sporadic flare-ups flare that subside over time. Violence is an integral part of daily life for any Palestinians under occupation, and it's deeply entrenched in the half a century long military occupation. This occupation denies the Palestinians the ability to exercise fundamental rights, first and foremost, the right of self-determination, either in the form of independent statehood as recognized by international consensus or as equal citizens with, with full rights. The situation perpetuates a relentless cycle of oppression that is deeply embedded now in the fabric of the Palestinian society under occupation. The structural violence that persists in the occupied territory can be traced back to the nature of the regime that Israel has imposed on the Palestinian population through the implementation of martial law and discriminatory measures, Israel has been able to protect and expand Jewish-only settlements, colonies in the occupied territory. And this is a clear violation of international law and I'll return to it. These settlements constitute a war crime in and of themselves and have proliferated and are shielding and are shielded by Israel's extraterritoriality. For Palestinians, this blossoming colonization epitomized by the growth of over 270 colonies for 720,000 settlers wrapped in bubbles of this, uh, Israel's extraterritoriality has resulted in physical confinement, land confiscation, forced evictions, home demolition, discriminatory law enforcement, arbitrary arrest and detention, and unrelenting violence, rendering, rendering the Palestinians defenseless. These actions, driven by Israel's demographic anxiety, have led to displacement, dispossession, and disempowerment as a condition of life for the Palestinians. Um, this painful reality, reminiscent of the destruction and attempted erasure, erasure of hundreds of villages in British Mandate Palestine that accompanied the creation of the State of Israel, disfiguring landscapes, 
reshaping the land to serve Israel's specific interests while forcibly separating, containing, and isolating the Palestinian people throughout areas under its control is not only the past, it's the present. And for over 50 years, two to three generations of Palestinians have grown up and lived a life dictated by martial law and draconian military orders. 40% of them are refugees expelled from what, from modern day Israel in 1947-49, including their descendants who sought refuge in the West Bank and Gaza Strip to escape the horror of war and violence that the creation of the State of Israel brought about. So in 1967, a new war would further displace most of them as part of the 350,000 new refugees escaping uh, the destroyed and depopulated Palestinian villages uh, and to whom ref uh, return would be denied, same as those who had escaped uh, hostilities in 1947-49. Little did those who in 1967 managed to remain in the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza know that in 2023, they would still wake up every day under the yoke of foreign domination, still in forced exile from their ancestral lands, and with a little hope of returning to the homeland and properties from which they had been unlawfully displaced and dispossessed. And the tragedy goes on. And now I come to the second critical part of my presentation, the present. When discussing Israel's, Israel's policies and practices in the occupied Palestinian territory, is it essential to recognize that Israel is a member of the international community and is therefore bound by the obligations derived from international treaties that it has ratified together with customary law. International humanitarian law, which includes the air regulation and the fourth Geneva Convention, outline the responsibilities of an occupying power toward the civilian population. According to IHL, the occupying power is only permitted to take measures necessary to restore public order and safety while ensuring the rights of the occupied population. Within the realm of uh, international humanitarian law, Article 49 of the Fort Geneva Convention holds particular relevance to this case because it aims to prevent colonization by explicitly prohibiting the transfer of occupying of the occupying power civilian population into the occupied territory and the displacement of protected persons, the occupied people, from their territory under occupation. This provision serves to safeguard the rights of protected persons, prevent economic deterioration, and safeguard the distinct existence. Article 49 also prohibits individual and mass forcible transfers and the deportation of protected persons outside the occupied territory. This prohibition is absolute, allowing no exceptions unless the security of the population or imperative military reasons so demand. Protected persons who wish to leave the occupied territory cannot be prevented from doing so. But violation of this norm constitute unlawful deportation of transfer, a grave breach of the Geneva Convention, which together with willful killing, torture, and extensive destruction of property constitutes a war crime. International humanitarian laws, law also applies extraterritorially to the occupied Palestinian territory, as it was recognized in 2004 by the International Court of Justice. And it applies including to the occupied Palestinian territory and Israel as an occupying power should make no exception. 
And yet, since the dawn of the occupation, Israel has fabricated a complex web of justification and loopholes to avoid adherence to its international obligations. Disregard for international law has become the only applicable and applied rule, promised on a two-pronged formula. First, Israel regards the Palestinian territory as disputed rather than occupied and claims controls over it for security reasons. It also maintains, as a second point, a constant state of emergency justified by a never-ending war in a hostile region where it's the only democracy, threatening it outside its borders with the perpetual threat of terrorism from the Palestinians and from their autonomous areas, which legitimate this hyper-control over the Palestinian population. This has formed the basis to undermine international humanitarian law, to derogate from fundamental protections under human rights law and potentially constituting crimes prosecutable under their own status. All these while invoking security for Israel and Israel only and its citizens. But mind you, the security that Israel is invoking is not for its territory. It's for all for its annexation plan because by advancing its um, conquest of Palestinian land, Israel advances the claim of security. Uh, and this is clearly unlawful. Um, the occupation uh, undermines, and this, is, was, and this was the core of my first report to the General Assembly. This occupation is, is intended to undermine, to prevent in perpetuity the realization of Palestinian self-determination in four ways. First, territorial sovereignty which Israel violates by seizing, annexing, and fragmenting the occupied territory in bantustans of shattered landscapes' lives and transferring, as I said, its own civilian population into it. Second, sovereignty over na natural resources, which are necessary to develop an independent Palestinian state and economy, which Israel violates by extracting and exploiting Palestinian resources, land, water, and whatever is on it and under it in order to generate profit, benefiting itself, third parties, and the settlers. And third, cultural existence of and as a people, which Israel violates by appropriating, erasing, and suppressing symbol, um, symbols of Palestinian identity, being uh, the ban through the banning of a flag or um, the, the prohibition of a Palestinian school curriculum or by imposing a sanitized curriculum which eliminates Palestinian history, or by apprehending, seizing, and converting Palestinian sites in Israeli cultural venues. Fourth, and most important of all, the formation and expression of the Palestinian polity, which is the beating heart of the right of self-determination as ultimately the right to exist as a people, free uh, economically, politically, and culturally. This is, this is the rights that Israel violates by interfering with the formation of political will and repressing political activity, activity as epitomized by the draconian persecution of reputable Palestinian human rights organizations like Al-Haq. Um, just an anecdote, as I was researching to write my current report about arrest and detention, I wrote to Shawan saying, I found record of your case dealt with 
by the United Nations Working Group uh, on, on Arbitrary Detention in 92, 94, 97, and you go on. So this man has been persecuted for his human rights activity since, uh, since ever, since you were young. <laughs> so chapeau to you. Um, so this has been accompanied by a logic of displace the Palestinian natives to replace them with others, often foreign citizens. This is the hallmark of settler colonialism. There's, there's no other way of calling it, of which the prolonged illegal occupation is the vehicle and apartheid is an unavoidable consequence. I know that in this country, many people are afraid of using this word. Feel free not to use it, but the reality remains one of systematic and widespread discrimination imposed by one group over another to maintain perpetual domination over the latter, which includes a number of crimes, including against humanity and war crimes. In the face of this, the Palestinian authorities the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank and the de facto authorities in Gaza have been unable or unwilling to oppose the system. Their own practices have in fact contributed to tightening the grip on Palestinians' fundamental rights and freedoms, while at times this results in violations against the Palestinian people. They themselves, themselves commit, including of academic freedom, freedom of association, freedom of expression. It must be underscored that the Palestinian authorities operate just within the crevices of the Israeli occupation and with the limitation of authority that this occupation imposes. So this existence in captivity of the state of Palestine denies Palestinians the adequate protection of a functional, that a functional state would provide, leaving the Palestinians once again defenseless and vulnerable. In light of all this, I've proposed a two-pronged approach, which I call paradigm shift premised on the application of international law and the respect for history and the facts. Um, and the achievement of a just solutions rest on both. First and foremost, the diagnosis must be accurate. For it, it is imperative to adopt a comprehensive and holistic analysis that considers the underlying intentions behind the prolonged disenfranchisement and dispossession of the Palestinians under occupation, rather than focus, focusing solely on isolated violations of international law. This shift in perspective reveals that the framing, understanding, and approach to Palestine must also undergo a fundamental change. It is not, as often wrongly portrayed, an intractable conflict arising from irreconcilable rivalries and incompatible identities. Rather, this is a product of a reality marked by deep and prolonged injustice, where one group is the occupier and the other is the occupied. One is the colonizer and the other is the colonized. The narrative presented to the public must reflect this reality or else we risk perpetuating an, an inaccurate narrative. And there is a significant obstacle to achieving this transformation. And um, this is the, sil the silencing around Palestine and any efforts to hold Israel accountable and the apartheid regime it has imposed on the Palestinian people scrutinized. There is an alarming trend um, that has infiltrated all public domains and including universities, including in the UK and elsewhere, transforming places of free thought, free thought into chambers of obscurantism. Scrutinizing Israel is met with censorship and even worse, self-censorship, fueled by the fear of being spuriously labeled 
as anti-Semite, and I know something about that. This climate stifles legitimate debate, which is crucial for peaceful and respectful progress. This issue is interconnected with um, another form of violence termed epistemic violence, which operates through the control and manipulation of knowledge and knowledge production. And uh, as Enrique Galvan Alvarez reminds us, domination is not only achieved through economic exploitation or political military control, but also through the framing and passing knowledge that legitimizes and perpetuates, su perpetuates such practices. An increasing number of voices denounce this as, uh, in the case of Palestine, as anti-Palestinian discrimination or anti-Palestinian racism, which seeks to silence, exclude, erase, stereotype, defame, and dehumanize Palestinians in their narrative. A glaring manifestation of this is the denial of Nakba commemoration events, which in, in certain Western countries has led to banning and violently repress legitimate expressions of freedom of speech and freedom of assembly. Second, after diagnosis, the prognosis must be principled. It is necessary to establish the primacy of the international rule of law as central to resolve the enduring reality in the occupied Palestinian territory, because the exceptionalism demonstrated toward Israel not only undermines the effectiveness of international law, but tarnishes the image, trustworthiness, and role of the international community and the United Nations. Um, in this context, it's important to remind ourselves that it's, it's, it's impossible to expect the oppressed, the colonized, the occupied to be on, a, on a equal ground with the colonizer and with the occupier when asking for negotiation. Negotiation and the nego a negotiated solution cannot be the way out. First and foremost, there should be the realization of the right of self-determination of the Palestinian people, with, which will not happen without an end to the occupation. This is the zero condition to think of negotiation. And in and the application of the law of third state responsibilities implies not only a cessation of the violation, so end of the occupation, but also that third countries do not aid and do not abet, do not cooperate with Israel until and unless it ceases to violate Palestinian rights, meaning until it ends the occupation as condition zero. And meanwhile, the third responsibility is ensuring reparation to the victims. Of course, this should also be accompanied by investigations, being it through the ICC, universal jurisdiction, or national courts, because many of those committing crimes in the, um, in the occupied Palestinian territory have double nationality. They are not, not just Israelis. So international, as I conclude, international law is as strong as the willingness of states to enforce it. And um, the credibility and the effectiveness of international law diminishes every day one of the members of the United Nations is allowed to violate it with impunity, with the complicity of others in the United Nations, especially those, United Kingdom, um, who almost eight years ago took the responsibility to be the prime guardians of peace and security. Tolerance of Israel's actions nurtures double standards and betrays the rule of law. So um, as I last thought, 
it is our collective responsibility, no matter who we are in every realm of action to contribute to undo the current reality. This is in the interest of both Palestinians and Israelis. For the Palestinians, because as Israeli professor of history and Judaic studies at the University of Massachusetts, Alon Kofino uh, says, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, the Palestinians are the people without rights, abused and discriminated against. But also for the Israelis who are now experiencing what Daniel Levy acutely refers to as the boomerang effect of colonization epitomized by the extremisms of the, the extremism of the settler movement that is now a leading force of the current government. Ending Israel's unlawful occupation is a necessary step forward and it will benefit not only those who suffer its brutality day in and day out, but also those who are involved in its enforcement, because this occupation corrodes and corrupts their humanity. And uh, with that, I thank you for your attention. That applause was truly deserved. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I think you heard a magisterial presentation of the law, its abuse, and what needs to be done about it. We've now got almost 20 minutes, 15 minutes, let's say, for your questions and comments, suggestions. Keep in mind, as I said at the beginning, that this is intended to be an action-orientated conference. We would like to hear your suggestions as practical, as feasible as possible. Let's not imagine the moon, but let's at least think about what is, are the things that we should be asking of our government and what we should be asking the British public to be aware of or what it's doing. There were a couple of things that struck me as Francesca was talking. One thing that keeps on coming up is the phrase, the past is the present. The consistency of practices by the Zionist forces under the mandate and of today's IDF, the inheritance by the parties of the messages and practices of control and repression of protests from the British mandate authorities and transferred over into Israeli military practices. And how the way in which the occupation is deliberately intended to undermine Palestinian exercise of self-determination. And I recall the statement that Prime Minister Netanyahu said only recently that only Jews are entitled to exercise self-determination on the land between the Jordan and the Mediterranean. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Um, as a personal anecdote, I knew the former Israeli foreign ministry's legal advisor, Ted Meron, Theodore Meron, when I was working at Human Rights Watch in the early 1990s, 30 years ago. Ted Moran was a distinguished lawyer who went on to become a judge at the International Court um, of Justice and the World Court. And as legal advisor for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, he sent a private memo to the minister at the time, warning that the government was breaching international law by the continuation of the occupation. And this was memo was buried and never fully addressed. In fact, never addressed at all. So it's your turn now. Um, we've got two ladies, one on either side, who are 
with microphones and I see the hand of Chris Doyle at the back there. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to hear Francesco again. Just a question. You, you said that the Israeli government calls the occupied territories disputed territories. Just wonder whether that's being a little bit generous at the moment. I don't think actually the Israeli government would refer to it as disputed territories anymore. I don't think they see the territories in dispute. Yeah. Francesca, do you want to take that? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll take three questions at once. And then the, the gentleman at, at the side over here with his hand up is the one I recognize next. James Spencer. Um, you've mentioned the British government uh, and you've mentioned um, civil society. Uh, we're currently sitting in Church House. Um, I just wondered whether you thought the Church of England, of whom I'm a member currently, um, could do more. Uh, I'm thinking in particular of their adoption of the IHRA uh, uh, definition and its examples, uh, and the uh, document they produced called God's Unfailing Word, um, which is um, not impartial. Uh, and I just thought whether um, we could perhaps uh, talk to the Church of England uh, about their attitude and whether. Thank they might start stand up my Palestinian brothers and sisters in Christ. No, thank, thank you, James, for, for that question. And we do have uh, members of the Church of England here who I'm sure would be able to respond, but I have some point. The, the lady at the front, and then I, I need to balance around the room and have a, a lady now uh, over here. Here's the microphone. I just wonder, what is our government scared of? Is it because it's not politically profitable to them? They're going to have to sort it. Or have they not moved on or they feel guilty or, uh, dare I say it, they remember the Holocaust. I'm a Holocaust second generation of a survivor. I find what Israel does absolutely unacceptable. I won't go to Israel. Um, I've been three times. Enough. So, what are they scared of? <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Let's take those questions. Francesca, would you like to answer the first one and then I will? Yes. Uh, yes. To the first question, you're totally right, uh, Chris. I mean, disputed is, um, is, I refer to it because this is the, the ground that Israel has used historically to deflect. Uh, the attention on the um, on the application applicability of hum international humanitarian law, and there is there has been uh, and it's even documented an acute um, intended engineered misuse manipulation uh, of international law using categories that made seem the whatever it was uh, the occupation legal. But it's been a series of fig leaves that now they are falling. You are right. I mean, now you have uh, Netanyahu or others. This is not just Netanyahu's uh, bombastic arrival to government again. I mean, many think that uh, um, the, the, the entire Palestinian, yeah, sorry, the, the, the entire occupied Palestinian territory, Gaza is a little bit of a quagmire, but still the entire of the, the entirety of the land, it's for the Jews only, which is extremely problematic. And again, this is not even challenged. 
Um, on James, you didn't have a question for me, I understand. Correct. I think the next one is probably more directed towards. No, but I, I'm, I'm really happy just to say I'm Please. really happy that you mentioned this, uh, this, this question, because trust me, I don't, I don't know if, uh, um, at least my in Italy, my compatriots do not understand what the IHRA is doing. You cannot have events to talk about Palestine without being accused of anti-Semitism. Why? Because there is this conflation of anti-Semitism and scrutiny, legitimate scrutiny of Israel as any state. Why Israel should be above the law? And um, and um, I will, I, maybe can, I can go to the third question now and the sense of guilt. As a European, I can tell you, we don't have any sense of guilt for anything because if there is if there is one people toward which the, the United Kingdom should feel a sense of guilt, this is the Palestinians among all the colonized. Because the, the situation of Palestine, what the Palestinians endure is still a legacy of that colonialism. Yeah, but even the others have no, I mean, look, I, I had an, uh, a clear idea about that. This through my first year as a special rapporteur, which has led me, and this has been really, I, I say, I don't say that strategically, it's really true. I've encountered so many um, Jewish communities and individuals through, throughout this journey. I had no idea that anti-Semitism was still so rooted in Europe, in European countries. So while anti-Semitism is alive and kicking, the way that the international community led by Israel, and I mean, whomever in Israel, is absolutely wrong because it risks to further endanger, further endanger any Jewish person, any Jewish community because of this incredible association with, uh, with everything Israel does. So there might be, anti-Semitic statement against the state of Israel. But it's not that every uh, criticism toward the state of Israel is anti-Semitic. I do think that there is a lot that has to do with profits here. Because there is, an, and this, this is why one area that I intend to investigate in the future as a special, as a special rapporteur is that of businesses and uh, how much profit there is in the military system, in the militarization of the occupied territory and in the security system. Because today, the, the technology the, and the surveillance systems that are being used and test, used against and tested on the Palestinians are bringing a lot of profits to Israel because they are being sold everywhere. So you see, it's something that is transcending the borders of Israel-Palestine and concerns all of us and our the space of our freedoms and, and liberty. I will add just a couple of words to what Francesca said and then turn to a second round of, of questions. I mean, I'm speaking in the presence in this room of several bishops who are strong supporters of the Balfour Project, both Roman Catholic and Anglican, and who have stood in the front lines of the fight with us. And I think I can say with all honesty is that the churches have been very good indeed, as far as we're concerned, in terms of being able to stand up against injustice. Maybe they, they could be doing more, but the way in which the, the churches took a strong role in preventing the move of the British embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem last year was really, I think, 
an example of how when they choose to use their influence that they can do so in a constructive way. Regarding the IHRA definition, uh, yes, this is certainly a very problematic issue indeed. We at the Balfour Project would prefer the Jerusalem uh, de uh, definition of it, which is a much more um, understanding uh, definition of, of anti-Semitism. But let's turn to uh, to other questions. Um, ladies at the, at the back, I see two hands up there, <laughs> right, right, right at the very back. Thank you very much indeed for that um, report. It was very interesting. But I wonder in your investigations while you're out, if you have any contact at all with the Palestinian Authority, and if you speak to President Abbas, because they seem singularly lacking in all of this. We never hear from them. We never get much action from them. And I just wondered what your view was of the fact that we go on supporting those people to do a job which clearly isn't being done. A good question, thank you. Uh, next, um, I'll take the gentleman at the back and then the lady in the middle. Is that you? Thank You're the next one. Thank you, Madam of the Party. Could you speak up, please? About the British uh, public discourse, which is the role of the so-called Oslo Accords? We are in the 30th anniversary of uh, the Declarations of Principles. A lot of my students tell me why we should uh, be worried about Palestine. They had agreements. They decided what to do. What do you think about uh, these uh, strange and incomplete framework? Thanks. Yeah, I know the lady in the middle here. Thank you. I know your mandate is about the post-67 occupation, and therefore it leads to the solution being ending the occupation um, and having a Palestinian state, which throws us back to Oslo and its non-implementation. Whereas it seems to me, given the reality of apartheid and of all the settlements, it's democracy we need from the river to the sea. So what I want to suggest to you is that we have to be careful in talking about the remedy, because if, because of your mandate, you're only allowed to talk about the occupation in 67, the possibility of a solution of democracy across the territory, which I think is now becoming the only feasible solution, would be ruled out, if you follow my argument. Yes, I do. Okay, do you want to take those? Yes, yes. Uh, look, this, this, the three questions are somewhat related, so I will try to have um, an organic reply that incorporates uh, the three. The Palestinian Authority operates under the Oslo Accords and is doing precisely what it was meant to do. The Oslo Accords have never been meant as... Uh, a vehicle to realize the right of self-determination for the Palestinian people. I remember it was here at SOAS as well when I was a, um, an LLM stu master student that I started reading um, Raja Sheades and his criticism of the Oslo Agreement in the very early days and saying this is a trap for us because it's going to put us in a situation where we, we will condone, we will give up 
all the the possibility to exercise power, including including uh, the legitimate use of force that was recognized, that has been recognized under international law to national liberation movements. So it was so convenient. However, and let's so it's it, the, the occupy uh, sorry the Palestinian Authority first of all as I said probably the the the, the metaphor I used was too lyrical and didn't convey <laughs> the content the substance of it. But the Palestinian Authority doesn't have real powers to protect the Palestinians. Have you seen the Palestinian Authority forces in Hawara, or do you ever see? The Palestinian uh, security forces ever deployed when when the settlers attack the Palestinians wherever they are, including in Area A. There have been nine thousand. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there have been nine thousand in thousand incursions, military incursions in one year alone last year, and seven hundred of those were in refugee camps. Seven hundred, and these rides are really violent. Many of them happen at night, and many of them result in to arrest and detention of children. This is what the occupation is. You really need to look at it very closely. And there is nothing that the Palestinian Authority can do or clearly is, available, is uh, uh, able to do in order to protect the Palestinians. So let's go to the second argument. The validity, I personally belong to that part of the legal community who thinks that who reads the five-year term of the uh, Oslo Accords like an, like an expiry date, and that expiry date is passed. So there are uh, scholars, including Palestinian scholars at, uh, at Birzeit University, who argue about the invalidity of, um, of the Oslo agreements based on the, uh, on the temporal clause. But for, for me, the, the question is another, that there is a limit to how much um, anyone can negotiate, and no treaty can result, including a peace treaty, can ever result into the, the violation of fundamental rights. And the right of self-determination is a peremptory norm of international law, which cannot be violated. And this is the limit. So I'm, I mean, we sh you should ask your government why it keeps on insisting on the two-state solution based on the on the Oslo agreements when the Oslo agreements have clearly, even if it was, even if they were well-intended, have clearly derailed. So there should be a new paradigm. And they go to the third question. I hope you have not overread or overheard what I, what I said, because I do not advocate for a two-state solution. I do not advocate for one-state solution. I do not advocate for anything for the simple reason that what I advocate for is the application of international law, which includes the Palestinians' right to choose. But the first condition is for them to be liberated from foreign domination and control through military occupation. Then it's up to them to decide whether they want to, they really want to have their own state or they want to be part of one state. But even the discussion that the one state should be, uh, you know, a, def a default solution this would be a recognition of sovereignty, Israel's sovereignty over the occupied Palestinian territory, which doesn't have. So this is why I said we have to be, especially as internationals, we have to be very careful in not taking the space that belongs to the Palestinians in order to exercise their right of ch to choose, first and foremost. Ladies and gentlemen, I see that there are still hands up. I really regret that we can't take them. We've run out of time for this session and we have to continue to go on. 
Thank you so much, Francesca. Thank There's you. one thing that has come clear to me is that one of the issues we should be asking about is to address the issue of the lack of protection that Palestinians have. This is a, a central issue. Even if it doesn't look politically feasible today, that is not a reason why we shouldn't be looking for innovative ways to be able to do it. We've, we've seen that the Israeli authorities are not keen on international presence of observers, but that is not a reason to demand that in the current situation, that there should not be an obligation on the part of the occupying authorities to allow international observers to have much greater role than they do today. So thanks you to, to, to Francesca. We will now move on directly to the next panel. So if the panelists could kindly come up and we will see. Thank you.